my name is Dennis Doan. I own a tattoo shop here in San Diego, California. I'm also a philanthropist. Um, I'm the founder of the Doan Foundation. Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all of You seem like you're really busy with things that are beyond tattooing. And I think we're going to get into the tattooing uh, quite a bit because I'm very interested in that sort of topic. Um, how did you get into uh, tattoo in the early days of your life? I was tattooing as more of a financial necessity at the time. It was just me and my dad at home. We we're on Section 8 welfare. I couldn't really get a job. I had a juvenile record. No matter how hard I tried, you know, as soon as they saw that, that ding, they automatically rejected me. So I was doing side projects like washing cars, uh, fixing car stereos, painting houses, and then eventually I got into tattooing. But um, it was because I couldn't afford to get tattoos that I decided I wanted to do them on myself. So I had a friend... I had an older friend I was tattooing at the time and um, I had asked him to do a back piece on me and he was willing to only charge me $700. But as a 15 year old, you don't really have $700 laying yeah. around. So I was like, you know, how am I going to, how am I going to look like all my friends, but not have to pay as much. So I asked my cousin to use his credit card and buy me a tattoo machine on eBay. And uh, I just got started the day I got everything. But did you draw and sketch before you picked up a uh, tattoo gun? Yeah, I, I had always drawn throughout my life. I was I was always that kid that my group of students in high school, middle school would use for the art pro for the projects, you know, like making the charts and everything, because that was like my forte versus they can do all the writing and organization and everything. But I was always that guy. Um, I was really good with graphic design growing up. I kind of maneuvered myself around GeoCities and all those website builders when I was younger. Yeah, it's pretty much always been around, but it was never something I envisioned becoming a career, you know, because as a Vietnamese American, your your family, that that topic doesn't even come up. Just tattoos in the Vietnamese community is a big stigma. That's why I'm kind of like unpacking this. You're... Um, a few people in the line of the tattoo world that I am starting to build into because I want to know more about uh, tattoo artists in the Vietnamese community, because I think it's a significant group of guys and gals that are doing work in the, um, in the tattoo space. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm starting to kind of explore this more. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that we have a cultural acceptance for tattoo traditions i don't think we have a deep tradition yes. i mean maybe i'm wrong but do you know if we have uh, a history of tattoo uh, artists in, in the world of the, the vietnamese different people have told me that vietnamese fishermen used to tattoo fish scales on them or whatnot to go and catch them but that's pretty much the only wow. history that i can recall when it pertains to Vietnamese, Vietnamese people. You know what I mean? Wow. Um, other than that, yeah, I think um, it's still, it's like an acquired taste. It's going to take a while for Vietnamese people as a whole to kind of get used to it. And I think 
I think it's getting there. The younger generation is putting it out there more. So the older generation has no, they have no choice but to accept it. You know what I mean? You, you know, what's funny about uh, you is that, mm. you know, when you're looking at you visually, you have, you're tatted up, but when you yes. speak, and this is a, there, it's not just when you speak, but when yeah. you are on social media, you write these lengthy probes, you write lengthy thoughts and mm -hmm. you're so soft-spoken. And this idea of what we visualize, what we see in front of us as people versus mm -hmm. what's going on in an artist's head, like with the tattoo artist, is very different. And that's why I thought, you know, when, when I was first introduced to you, I thought this was very interesting. Your approach to sort of like this gentle um, words and, you know, you write lengthy posts. I think it's very uh, interesting. Did you ever go to school um, coming out of high school? Did you go to college? Did you, what was your education track like before you got into tattooing? Growing up, I was always 4.0 student, perfect attendance, all that. You know, everything you can hope for. It didn't, it didn't matter what I was doing on the streets. I was still taking care of business in the classroom. Um, my mom left when I was young. So during the two years after that, I kind of got stuck in this mental state. And that's when things went downhill a little bit. <clears throat> it was like freshman, sophomore year of high school. But um, I was able to pick myself back up and graduated high school with honors, got a full ride scholarship. I went to San Diego State and uh, I was trying to become a plastic surgeon, actually. Why plastic surgeon? I don't know. I was always interested in it. I like working with my hands, obviously. But um, I looked up to my brother a lot growing up, and he became a doctor. So therefore, I thought I had to go the same path. You know what I mean? But, but me thinking in terms of trying to replicate his accomplishments, it kind of it had an adverse effect. And it made me look down, look down on myself, yeah. I guess you could say, throughout yeah. most of my life. You know what I mean? Until... I was forced to do tattooing full time. That's when I finally realized it was my passion and I just went all in. Oh, that makes uh, sense. This idea of contextually putting yourself next to your brother and he's a doctor. And, you know, so when you are in this, I don't know, post juvenile detention, post juvenile world, your mm -hmm. options, you said, are limit, were limited, right? Mm -hmm. But there's this academic sort of um ability that you have that you're, you're you know you're smarter and yeah, you know yes. you feel like it's limited so that shame compounds itself because i was gonna ask you because you you write about the idea of shame is it a yeah. cultural shame or is it just within the family that you experience this sort of shame or is it all of the above i think i think it's a construct that society kind of inadvertently you know cast on you i mean growing up you're taught you know people with tattoos are bad and they just got out of prison and if you're not you know a doctor or lawyer you're not going to make it but it's ironic because i was the first person in my family born here in america but i felt like i had to um make up for my family's lack of 
like their dreams they didn't accomplish, the sacrifices they made, um, things like that. I felt like it was up to me to kind of carry the torch and go from zero to a hundred. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of pressure growing up and so it wait, didn't even uh, have to be said. It was just, yeah. So do you, you know, think there. that you are competitive with your brother and things are like, you can compete toe to toe with him? No, I, I wouldn't say that we, we're in totally different, like different realms. You yeah. know what I mean? And it's really, I, my, my life is just, it's very ironic. Everything is ironic. You know, when I step into my brother's office to go visit him, um, yeah, I go. I rarely there, but if his resentment sees me, she's like, "Who the heck are you?" You know what I mean? Yeah, we look totally different. We have different approaches to life, but at the end of the day, we're still like we're still really close. You know? Yeah. So, why do you think tattoos are important to people? And I ask this because I know that you spend a lot of time in a chair with another person in a chair. So it's like it's like therapy work, right? Why do you think it's so important for people to get tattoos? I think for the most part, people get them because they serve as reminders of milestones in their lives, whether or not they're good or bad. You know what I mean? Like uh, personally, all my tattoos, my tattoos suck. I did most of them myself, you know, Um, but I would never regret them because they're all sacrifices that I made at the time on my own body in order to do better for other people. Right. So everything I have on me marks a certain time in my life and it reminds me of where I was at that time. So I think that's, that's the main reason. Other than that, there, there, there are some people that just get it for the aesthetic. Yeah. Um, trust me, I, I've tattooed kids that, you know, I know they've been bullied their whole lives. They've never really, you know, attracted the women they wanted. And then all of a sudden I'll tattoo the whole body and their whole persona changes. Wow. That is pretty crazy. But I feel like it it sometimes unleashes people's true self. Yeah. After, after the fact, you know, but um, yeah, definitely changes lives in good and bad ways, you know? (laughs) Wow. I I, I never thought about that. You know, um, that is a real interesting observation because it, it, confidence, it, for sure. it unleashes something inside the human psyche when you put something so permanent on your body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to do that so publicly, you are forcing yourself to actually grow and say, you know what, world, you know, this is me and I'm going to put this out there. And especially like face tattoos or neck tattoos. And those are like really out in the public. Yes. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of times where, you know, that that individual may have not gotten attention from family, friends, you know, their peers, people out in the world. And all of a sudden they have all this attention on them and people are asking them when they got their work done. And that strikes conversations and it just it changes their lives, you know. They go from introvert to extrovert. Wow. And how has it changed the dynamics within your very niche cultural Vietnamese corner in your life? Has it, you know, been different ever since you're fully coming out with tattoos? You're a tattoo artist and the world that you come from, especially now that I know that there's like a doctor in the family, you're, you, you know, you had good grades. 
how has the sort of like the perception changed throughout the years of your career? Um, during the early years when I had started tattooing myself, I was doing it in the bathroom at like one in the morning, right? So I tattooed myself in the bathroom in my room. My, my dad had no clue I was doing tattoos. And at the time, the machines, they're really loud, loud like, yeah. you know, the buzzing. But I also used to cut hair at the time. So I would just tell them, like, oh, I'm cutting my hair. Or I'm cutting someone's hair or whatever. So I had clients over at the house. I did that for a while. I hid my, I had two half, upper half sleeves and both my legs were tattooed already. So I was wearing pants all the time. I was wearing long sleeve shirts all the time. And then when I was 19, I got my... So my he, neck tattoo. He never saw any <laughs> of this. No. Wow. Well, he was barely home. Like my dad was always working or drinking and I was just at home doing my thing. So I got my neck tattoo when I was 19 and I started having to wear like turtlenecks. <laughs> so even in the summer, it'd be like 110 degrees. I still wear turtlenecks. And I, I actually went to Vietnam that year as well. And uh, my mom's family is there. My grandparents so I was wearing turtlenecks in Vietnam. You know how hot it is over there. So my grandma was like, oh, no, it's out my door, yeah. And then I was like, oh, being sound, or something, right? So I would say that every day I was there for like three weeks. It was so hot. But then after that, I was just like, you know what? Fuck it. So um, when I came back from that, that's when I started revealing my tattoo slowly to my family. You know? oh, what did they say? Um, well, my mom, I, like I said, she left when I was young, but we see each other once every two, three years. And when we were in Vietnam, we went to this uh, spa. So me and my brother went in one side and my sister-in-law and mom were on the other side. I, I didn't know it would end up being co-ed when the massage part came. So I was wearing nothing but shorts, right? So I walked to the room and my mom just looked at me and then just shook her head and that's it. But, you know, but I mean, she shook her head, but why would that have an effect on you? I mean, she left and, you know, yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, so, yeah, but, you know, I, I've always been very, I think my issue is I always want to make people happy. You know, yeah. I don't like to disappoint anyone. I don't like to um, measure any less than what people expect. So that's always been kind of instilled in my head. So I always have this guilty conscience about everything, you know, Um but yeah, when she did that and I was just like, you know, whatever, I'm just going to, it's time. You know, so when I came back, I started to wear shorts. I was able to dress like a normal person again. And over time, um, I think my head tattoo is the one where it takes people a while to kind of uh, absorb it. Like I try not to show my head tattoo when I'm around my, my family, like the older, older folks. Because, you know, I just want to avoid the questions and yeah. all that. Yeah. But you just got to pick and choose where you want to, you know, be yourself. I mean, it's hard, but out of respect, you know, you, in, in Vietnamese culture, you have this fine line between respect, disrespect, and old values, new values. And you just got to um, gotta know who your audience is, basically. Read the room, you know? Yeah. And that's yeah. what I find so interesting about tattoo artists, especially in the Vietnamese community, it being so new. And then this space that you have to navigate about being yourself, you know, like you don't really think about that outside of the Vietnamese community. But when you're in the Vietnamese community, 
this idea of respect, this idea of navigating where we belong and what our positions are is tricky. And it's a, a weird thing. Why would, why would we give a fuck? You know, it's like, it's just such yeah. a weird thing to me that we would care about what our elders think about just ink on our body. And yeah. that's why <laughs> I just want to keep meeting tattoo artists and talking about yeah. this topic, you know? Yeah, I think that um, another negative connotation to tattooing is, um, say, my uncle, when he was in the refugee camps, he, you know, he got tattooed there, like his stamp or whatever yeah. it may be. So there's just so many negative connotations to it that they've experienced in the past that it's hard for them to think of that one positive. You know what I mean, it always overweighs like the new positive that tattoos reveal. Um but yeah, I mean, over time, I feel like, you know, it'll it'll be more accepted. But that's why most of my life I've, I've gravitated towards, you know, I, I hung out with a lot of Lao people growing up. Um, my wife is Lao as well. But it's because they they accepted me in in every way, like tattoos, personality, my way of life, everything. You know, they never judged me, even as a 15, 16 year old being fully, fully tattooed. So I've always gravitated towards all other cultures because of, you know, because of that. Um, I mean, I think it's sad, but eventually over time, things will change. I, I, I truly believe that. And um, even now, I, when I go to nonprofit charity events and I sit down, I'll, I'll be sitting with a table of lawyers, doctors, and I can see, I can feel them looking at me differently because they're like, why, why the hell is this guy here? You know what I mean? And then I have this situation where I went to an event and I had donated a, a painting and um, I sat there for a while and they didn't say a word to me um, for maybe like two hours until I got called up to basically present my, my uh, donation. And then all of a sudden I got back and they're like, Oh, let me take a picture with you. And can you sign this? And, oh, I really like your work. And so, you know, it's just, it takes, it takes walking into those situations to change it. You know, if we, if we keep avoiding those things and being intimidated or afraid to be around those type of people, we're not gonna, we're never gonna make any progress. You know what I mean? Um, I, I love those kind of stories, man. I, I love it. Absolutely. And then that's yeah. why I want, to continually meet tattoo artists because of this very reason the tattoo artists that i know both in the vietnamese community and outside are pretty solid people who are thoughtful just thoughtful human beings i have a cousin joanna joanna win she um tattoos up here in la and she's just very thoughtful hard as fuck but she's thoughtful yeah. you know yeah. um and and you I know, I feel like we have to be extra. Yes. everything we do, we have to go above and beyond because we have to eradicate any judgment people already have. Yeah, you know when they see us. So it, you got to be extra nice. You have to be extra welcoming. You know, everything is above and beyond, pretty much. But it's different. It's like you know, I think from a Vietnamese cultural traditional perspective, seeing you, it's almost like seeing a, you know, probably the way they look at it as gang members or motorcycle mm -hmm. bike gang or 
they affiliate it with things that are are not uh, soft things that are. And then when you talk to you, and then we're going to get into this foundation work too, this mentoring and all this other stuff. It's a, uh, it's it, it, it goes back to my kind of like this feeling that I get when I meet Vietnamese tattoo artists. You know, I had yes. Andy Tran uh, on recently. Um, and I just want to get to know the tattooing community more because I want to break through the stereotype of Vietnamese people, the older generation. When we look at people in America and the diaspora in Vietnam, there's these judgments that we make. You know, I have that in me. I have that deeply encoded in within me. So I want to explore and find out how I can undo it in myself and in the older community as well. The 50, 60, 70 year old people that listen to the podcast that, wait a minute, these people, these artists, mm -hmm. Vietnamese artists, ta tattoo artists, there are a lot of deep thinking guys. And what you've done with the foundation work and what you started uh, resonates within me so much. So can you tell me what that journey was and how you got started with that work? Um, so I've been tattooing for, I think it's about 18 years now. Um, last summer, I, um, well, I kind of had an epiphany. I've been working so hard and striving towards all these goals and it just feels like it's never enough. You know, you're always going to want a nicer car, a bigger, bigger shop, a bigger house, things like that. But, you know, as the years have gone on, I, I realized none of that stuff really makes me happy. There's no, you know, there, there's a sense of purpose because you're trying to drive yourself towards that goal. But once you reach that, it's just like, it's just going to repeat itself over and over. You know what I mean? Um, so I did some deep digging and I was thinking about my journey when I started and how this, my scholarships actually helped me a lot. Uh, even though I didn't stay in college, it definitely, it was definitely an experience to be had because if I had not gone to college, I would have always thought to myself, okay, what if, what if, you know, what if I could have been this or that, at least I went and proved to myself that it wasn't for me. And then that's when I gave up. But a lot of these kids, you know, growing up in the neighborhood I grew up in, which, you know, they're all low income um, immigrants, um, they don't have too many options. So they don't have too many options in terms of career, school choice, things like that. You know, there's very few that, you know, top notch 4.1, 4.2 students that will ever make it. Um, and even so, if they do and they don't have a scholarship to support them, it's like, how will they ever survive? They're going to end up, you know, dropping out after a few months, can't pay tuition, can't pay for gas, things like that. So I decided I was going to try to do something that would help them even in the smallest ways. So I was like, okay, I'm going to start my own nonprofit. Um, because I had worked with a few during the pandemic. Um, when I had created my uh, Haters of Virus artwork, I was working with them, I was donating some of the proceeds to them, but I also encountered a lot of nonprofits that felt kind of shady to me, you know what I mean? Um, all I can say is they're all working towards the same goals, but it feels like they're all trying to step on each other's toes. So I was like, okay, this guy seems kind of weird. This this organization seems kind of sketchy. Like, where is this money really going? I don't like not knowing, you know? 
So at that point, I'm like, you know, the only way for me to know where it's going is if I do it myself. So I had initially, I told my wife, like one night, I'm like, I'm going to start a nonprofit. She's like, okay. You know, I, I have so many business ideas all the time. She's just like, whatever. So next day, I literally put in the paperwork and just made it happen. Um, and I initially wanted to just do my own thing. Basically, I donate every year anyway. So I was just going to put all this money into a fund and just give away scholarships, right? And um, one of my wife's friends, who was the one who introduced me to Tao, he was like, why, why do it at all if you're not going to go all out? Mm. You know? and, and it's true because my character all my life, I've always gone all in and everything I did. So I guess I was scared because I had no experience in the nonprofit sector. Um, and looking the way I do, how am I going to reach out to donors, um, students even? How am I going to talk to teachers, counselors? But I was like, you know what? Let's you know, let's change the narrative and let's try to make it happen. So I, um, while that paperwork was going through, I built up my website. I did all the donor um, applications. I posted scholarships on uh, all of the avenues online. Um, I reached out to all these sponsors, donors, all types of stuff. I created t-shirts. Um, yeah, just the whole nine yards. So that was just last August. So shortly after I started playing our first gala and um, we just had that in May. And then I, that's when I realized like I was getting a lot more support than I had initially thought, you know what I mean? Like the community really wants to do something and it helps that I have such a large network of clients to actually understand who I am, what I'm trying to do. And they know for a fact that I'm not going to go do some dumb with the money. You know what I mean? I'm very transparent in everything I do. So you can literally just track every step. Um, I think that's really important. Um, the experience I've had with a lot of Asian nonprofits is that it, everything isn't so transparent. You know, like you, you get really confused about what you're doing or why you're helping or, you know, you don't know, you don't see, put a face to who the money is going to. And uh, I don't like that at all, you know? So the approach I wanted to take when it came to my nonprofit was I wasn't gonna, I wasn't going to do it just for us Asian Americans. I was gonna help all kids, you know? And I wanna take a different approach. I wanna reach out to the Mikang nonprofits, the Midang nonprofits, all that. So it's allowed me to, to kind of like weave in and out um, I've worked with the Ronald McDonald Foundation, uh, Ronald McDonald House Charities, um, and other different like American established uh, organizations. You know, uh, are I mean, there's there's a lot of Vietnamese nonprofits doing really good work, but I feel like it's time for us to venture out and basically represent us as a people giving back to other Americans. You know, I think we've been established here for long enough to where, you know, we can help the next generation of, you know, Hispanics, things like that. Um, yeah, because it's all about inclusivity. You know, it's, most of my scholarship recipients for this past year, they're all, they're all pretty much Hispanic um, females from 
Los Angeles County because they're the ones who took the initiative, you know? It's not like we're going to pick all Asian kids and I don't know. I just don't like the bias. I grew up with everyone in San Diego here. Um, our community, Vietnamese community is pretty big, but it's not like Orange County. You know what I mean? So the people who raised me were white, Mexican, black. My best friend growing up was Mexican. His dad used to take me home in elementary school in his tortilla truck. And, you know, it's just community. I think that's really important. I love it, man. I love it because it's, you know, you're giving back to the world and you're not just pigeonholing the giving and it's helping people who are not even in San Diego. Yeah. You know, now, uh, when you say um, your friend, your wife's friend, Tao, like, how did she help? Because she's been on the podcast and I'm just wondering how she played a a hand in the, I, I saw some posts with her in it and I thought it was very interesting. So how does this all play in uh, socially? Yes. Okay. So my wife's, one of my wife's best friends, his name is Vu. So Vu and Tao, they serve on the same, they're board of directors for uh, North County Promise, which is a nonprofit in Oceanside here. So Vu knew Tao. And, you know, I didn't know anyone from a nonprofit sector, but I've, you know, people have used like my artwork for covers of their magazines and whatnot. So I think Vu had reached out to Tao like, Hey, I got a friend named Dennis and he is starting a nonprofit. Like, just hear him out. I mean, you guys just connect, right? So we met at this, you know, high class place here in San Diego. And as she walked in and we talked and I had not realized that the, I think it's the, uh, what is it called? It's like a Vietnamese women magazine that used my, um, my artwork for their cover. Let's talk about that real quick. That because that came yes. up twice already. Can you tell yeah. me about that artwork? Because that's very relevant to our conversation as well. Oh, okay. So during the peak of COVID, my business was shut down for seven months. Okay. So during that time, the rise in Asian hate violence had gone up significantly. And um I was just sitting at home, you know, I, I felt like I couldn't do anything. I saw, you know, people coming together and making a difference, trying to help, help those victims out financially or, you know, by activism. So I think I was scrolling Instagram and I saw Hate is a Virus, the nonprofit organization. And I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. That's a cool saying, you know, like, I think it'll make a difference. So I didn't have anything to do. I didn't have projects. I was literally just rescheduling clients every day. I sat down. I'm like, okay, I'm going to draw something, you know, and I, I don't really draw for fun. Everything I do is directly pertaining to the project I'm going to work on. It's very rare. I get to do something just out of my head. So I sat down, I drew this girl in a non with the sash on it. That was an American flag and she had a mask over her face. So all this was supposed to represent us as Asian Americans, but we're not accepted. You know what I mean? And then the background on that image was gray, which represents, you know, how we're in this gray area where we're not like seen as American, but, you know, we're here and we contribute. But it's like when all, when push comes to shove, it's like we're the enemy all of a sudden, right? So I posted a sketch of that 
before I had colored it online, everyone's like, oh shit, that's super cool. Whatever. So let's just talk about that description once again. It's a girl mm-hmm. with a conical hat and mm-hmm. she has a mask on that says hate is a virus. Is that what mm-hmm. we're describing here? Yes. Yes. Yeah, for all those just listening to the to the podcast. Um, and I remember that vividly. So mm-hmm. that was released during the height of the pandemic. Is that mm-hmm. what you're saying? And so it was 2020, I believe. So, okay. So then how did you release it on your Instagram or how did it get circulated and go viral? Well, honestly, like I was just, it's weird because I was just drawing it for fun. So I was drawing it for fun and um, I, I eventually just colored it and I posted it. You know, I wanted it to just be something people can use to basically communicate their their outrage, their sadness, things like that. And they can repost it and whatnot. So then when I posted it, it just kind of went crazy. Like everyone started sharing it. And remember, I wasn't, I wasn't working for seven months. So I was paying, I was still paying rent for my shop out of my own pocket. You know, I had no employees working, anything. So one of my friends, he he owns five of the charities here in San Diego. He um he was like, dude, you need to make like some shirts or something. I was like, no, nah, I don't really have the money. It would have cost me like, you know, 10,000 print, like a few thousand of them. I was like, no, nah, I don't want to do it. Well, I don't think it'll sell. You know what I mean? Wow. And he was like, no, you got to do it. I'm like, no, nah, I'm good. And my wife too. She was like, yeah, you should do it. I'm like, no, nah, it's not worth it. We don't know how long we'll be shut down. I don't know if I have the money to do it. And then one day he just orders it. Right. So he orders 2000 shirts. So 2000 shirts. I've never done anything with apparel in my whole life. I've never sold clothes, anything. I never had a job in retail. Um, but like I said, I don't like, I don't like owing people and I don't like to let people down. So I made it work. I made a website for it. I did the whole Shopify thing, the cart, all that. I learned everything there was to learn within like two weeks while it was getting printed. Right. So all those shirts came. So then I started taking pre-orders. Um, I think we sold maybe 1,500 shirts in like a month and a half or something like that. So 1,500 shirts. And we donated 10% of all the proceeds to Hate is a Virus. And then the rest, the funds actually saved my business. Wow. Yeah. So that was crazy. So it was, it was an accident. You know, the whole thing was an accident. Um, but then that wasn't the, the craziest year. The next year, this around the same time when things started amping up again, that's when it really went viral, which I don't understand. I think someone had reposted it and then all of a sudden it caught traction again. But that's when I met like Antai, Tai Wing, and um, I got in contact with Johnny VQ and you know, Facebook posted it, Instagram posted it. I was on PBS. I was doing, um, you know, VN Express. I was on a Vietnamese news channel. Um, I was doing all these podcasts. It was pretty crazy. God. So then I sold another 1500 shirts. See? And then I, then I cut it off. Yeah. Why did you cut it off? I don't know. I didn't want to dilute the message too much, I guess, you know? I don't know. I, I had this thing where I was like, okay, I'm not just going to keep beating this. I felt like I was 
I didn't want to feel like I was using this message for profit, you know? So I decided I was just going to, I copyrighted it and then I'll just donate it where I can donate it. So I cut it. You know, there's people ask me to use the design, like, oh, can we use the design? I was like, no, unless you're doing something good with it, you know, <laughs> that's it. That's why I copyrighted it, right? I mean, there was a lot of replications. I saw someone actually print out a bunch up in Seattle. I had to send them a cease and desist. But um, it got pretty crazy. And I didn't have time. You know, I was literally packing all these shirts, folding them. Um, one time it took me like, I had to do it overnight because I had all these pre-orders. It took me eight hours to do all of them. You know, and with my tattoo skills, it was just too wild. Man, the kind of shit that happens when luck just comes by, right? Yeah. It keeps you in business during the hardest part of, you know, that time period for all of us. Mm-hmm. It's amazing what the universe sort of like delivers to us when we don't expect it. You know, it's like, it's so interesting to me when I, when I think about things that I hear in these interviews and how much it relates to luck and you know, it's sometimes it's being at the right place, at the right time and being prepared. But sometimes like in your situation, it's not even like there's no preparation. You're just you drew something and you didn't even want to put it out there. Or you didn't even want to do T-shirts with it. Your friends like I'll put money down. Yeah. And he probably made all of his money back and then some, um, you know, with. Yeah. with it's, yeah, he he fronted like ten thousand dollars. I think I paid him back within like six weeks. So it was pretty crazy. But um, it was extremely difficult because I don't know if you know this, but tattoo shops have extremely hard time like getting business insurance that covers a lot of things. Um, when I had applied for the grants, the loans, things, when we got shut down, I didn't. I got rejected every time. I think I didn't receive a grant from California until two years later. So they paid me out like a little amount or whatnot but at the time when i needed it it was like oh no you know we're gonna give it to all the nail salons the barbershops things like that i feel like it's because this niche is not it's not considered a real business yet to a lot to a lot of people in the business world to our people whatever it may be but um it's hard it's definitely hard to navigate like just getting business if you were trying to get a business loan to open a tattoo parlor you'll definitely get rejected you know it still has that negative connotation in the business world. So, so those shirts saved my life. I want to ask you about your style. Um, how much of that? Because you, you know, you are really focused on the foundation work and the social mm-hmm. aspect of this all. And we haven't talked about the stylistic side of things because. Some people are generalist, generalists that just do whatever the client asked them to. Um, they probably stick within a specific style, but uh, some people like just really concentrate on specific lanes that they want to do, and, and they just want to expound and, and get really good at that. How do you feel? What's your sort of theory on on? You know, being somebody who can just do all the art that people come to you from all walks of life, or are you part of a tradition that you feel that this is a sacred way of life and you want to just kind of focus on this niche? Um, I didn't have the privilege of 
having a specialty. You know, when when I started tattooing, it was out of necessity. So I took beggars can't be choosers. So I took in literally. It doesn't matter if it was a butterfly or a, a full Asian back piece. So a lot of the tattoo artists now they they have all the resources like YouTube videos to teach them, and they have um, you know classes they can take, seminars, things like that. When I was starting, is there was like maybe one or two DVDs that you could watch on tattooing, and the art the tattoo shows had just barely come out. Everyone was still kind of skeptical about it. Um, tattoo schools were really frowned upon. And it was basically you had to be you had to seek out an apprenticeship or else you weren't considered a serious tattoo artist. So. I I wanted an apprenticeship really bad. I was trying I worked for these two Mijang guys, actually, because I was trying to take a different route than just the you know, learning uh, Asians, learning from other Asians type deal. And uh, they didn't really teach me much, unfortunately. Um, they kind of just put me to work after three months because they knew I already knew how to tattoo, but it, I wanted to learn, you know what I mean? So it was tough. So I just took in whatever work I could and um, I just taught myself basically, you know? So repetition, um, countless hours doing research and I, I learned to love everything. You know, even though I may specialize in one thing or another, I, I can still appreciate every, every style of work because you have to, if you're going to do the tattoo, if you're not into it or you don't force yourself to be into it, then there's no point in doing it at all because it's going to look like shit, right? Yeah, but do you uh, do people come to you because they know that you are emphasizing one particular tradition? Is that something that your um, client base think of you like you're an anime guy or you're like a you know a california sort of you know the the, the way scripts yeah, are yeah. written in california you know so yeah uh -huh. do people come to you for a certain thing yeah it's mostly um large-scale asian work with emphasis on realism i guess you could say mm. yeah so ironically when i started tattooing though my specialty was like chicano work Wow, interesting. And it just kind of gravitated, obviously, because I'm Asian. So people assume I do Asian work. So I got all this Asian work, and now I'm like an Asian tattoo artist, you know. But it also helps the selling point because people would rather go to an Asian tattoo artist for Asian tattoos, right? But me, I grew up with a lot of Mexicans in mostly Mexican neighborhood, and uh, I was doing nothing but gang tattoos, like lettering, um, you know, Virgin Marys, things like that. So even like the Asian gangsters in my neighborhood, they're still they're all getting the same thing too. Like just just the hood tattoos, pretty much. Yeah. Not really images, you know, words. Um, so that's what I started off doing a lot of. And um I eventually gravitate towards Asian work in maybe like 2009 or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When people come to you and you look at what they want and you hear what they want and you think that is some whack shit. Do you tell them? I mean, how do you oh, yeah. people? Uh, I'm super straightforward. So I'll tell them in a way where it doesn't offend them and it makes them think. So if you came to me and you gave me a really bad idea, I would be like, I'm like, I don't think that's going to look good. <laughs> but if you want to do it, then we will do it. You know what I mean? And almost always they're going to change their mind. And then there's other times where people 
want to get things that are maybe offensive to other people, right? Um, I had a Michan guy come in one time and he wanted a tattoo of Umfa uh, on his leg, right? But with uh, marijuana leaves surrounding him, right? And this is not like, a joke. This is not a no, joke. No, 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 no. But, you know, when it comes to customer service, if you say anything wrong, you're like the bad guy. So in, in turn, for his dumb idea, I had to give him a dumb price and a dumb uh, waiting time. So I told him, okay, I'm going to charge you $500 an hour, and it's going to be a three-year wait. And that deterred him, and then I never saw him again. But you, there's no way to put him down lightly and tell him, like, dude, what the hell are you talking about, you know? Um, and there's other things that you just kind of pick up while on your journey as Asian tattoo artists, like superstitions and things like that. Like one, you can't get umbia like anywhere umbia um, fuck anywhere below your waistline is disrespectful, right? And you should always have them blinded so they can't you know see your sins. Uh, it's things like that. Koi fish going up. Um, just little things that are passed down from generation to generation that you have to know. And that's what the client's paying you for. So for that knowledge, right? Oh, you can't learn that from any book. Yeah. Yeah. It's just superstitions. And have you ever crossed the line with the superstition? Like unknowingly crossed the line? And you're like, oops. No, no, no. Like, unless they want to, like a lot of Chinese, Japanese, Vietnamese, we're all really different. Like the Japanese, they always, um, they almost always dot the eyes on their dragons versus the Chinese usually hollow them out or make them glassy with no pupils. Mm. Um, everyone just has their own beliefs. Um, the Japanese tattooing, they don't mind putting images of gods and deities on the legs, but with Chinese, Vietnamese, we cannot. Right. So you got to know, you just have to know the difference and explain the differences to the client and whatever else is up to them. Yeah. Now you've been sitting in a chair with clients who sit in a chair, who you exchange ideas and change emotional patterns and see trauma and hurt. How much of that gets expressed in tattoos or is it more, balance with you know happiness and you know joyful things i i i I, i'm curious to know how much trauma and hurt is a part of tattooing uh expressed in art versus like happy and joyous things the amount of people that get tattoos to represent traumatic times in their life versus happy ones is, is pretty balanced you know what I mean? It's not more one or the other. Um, people like to mark milestone both both ends of the spectrum. You know what I mean? When people have babies, they're really happy. They want, you know, their baby's footprints tattooed on them to mark that special time in their life. And, you know, other times I'll do memorial tattoos and um, that marks the end of someone's life. So uh i'm i'm superstitious and i never i almost never charge anyone for memorial tattoos whoa what does that mean um no i just i I wouldn't feel i don't feel right so wait you know if if i'm tattooing someone's dad's dad that passed away his name on it i'm not gonna i'm not gonna charge them for that you know what i mean oh shit yeah i don't 
believe in that. It's weird. It's just weird for me. But but they have to be have prior clients that you would do that for, right? It's not mm, just people off the street. Not necessarily. I mean, if they're going to wait. If they're down to wait, then I'm willing to do that for them. But usually they want it immediately, you know? So I rarely get those. But when I do, it's like, I, I wouldn't feel right taking like any type of monetary contribution for, you know, marking the end of somebody's life. That's it's just a, it's a personal thing. I don't know. Wonder where that comes from. It's just taking care of my people. You know, I am um, my clients that have been with me since 2005. I still charge them the same as I did in 2005. So if, if I was charging them 50 bucks an hour, that's what I'm charging them today. Right. So it takes a toll sometimes on my life, but that loyalty, there, there's no, it's priceless, right? So that's how I've been able to maintain this crazy large group of clientele. I mean, it, it becomes a headache because everyone has like a different price, different rate. They all met me at different times in my life, but you know, I work through it and they keep my business going. So and, why and not, how do you right? keep track of that? pricing you put in a notebook yeah i have to i have to note them every single time i book them so it gets pretty crazy but uh, we work through it you know who do you respect in the vietnamese tattoo world is that uh too racy to to, to ask no i don't know i don't really I, I i communicate with all like a lot of Vietnamese tattoo artists, I wouldn't say I focus on one or the other person unless I kind of know them personally, like Andy. Um, I talk to him here and there. Talk to uh, Tony Dang here and there just because we're within the same circle. Well, yeah. You know what I mean? But I have never looked at another tattoo artist like, oh, I'm going to be exactly like them. You know, I've always tried to stay in my own lane and do my own thing. I don't want to be part of the the industry right like if you find me you find me if you don't then you don't i don't do conventions anything it's all pretty much word of mouth if you see me online then maybe you'll hit me up but that's how my whole business model has been based since i was young so i stay true to that yeah and at the end of the day you're running a business and you want to keep your kind of uniqueness um and you you want to be relevant in your own way and not you know, be part of the, part of the, the, the herd. Yeah. And I, I don't feel like, I mean, I love tattooing. It's, you know, I do it every day. It's always going to be something that I do, but it's not my, it's not my final act, I guess you could say. Yeah. It doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like yeah, it. It, it's a means to something else. So that's where the nonprofit comes in. That's why I'm building it because, you know, eventually when I do retire, when I'm 55 or whatever, that's what I'll be doing because I've never had a real job in my life. Like literally I have nothing on my resume, but business owner and that's it. Right. So I don't have a backup plan. I never have had a backup plan. So I was forced to make this work. So that's why it was so crucial for me to, you know, lay everything on the line and, make it happen. And it's a miracle that I did. So now it's time for me to pass all the knowledge, pass, pass all the, the hardships and my, my ability to maneuver those hardships onto the next generation and try to help them out as much as I could, you know, yeah, just for that, Southern California at the time. 
Yeah. And and there's not a whole lot of tattoo Vietnamese tattoo artists. If you really think about them, you break it down. You know, yeah, there's you not name two other guys, right? Tony Dang and, and Andy Tran. Um, I know maybe three or four more. And yeah, that's not in Orange County now. Yeah. Not in Orange County, but the tradition of like if you go to Japan or there's Japanese uh, tattoo artists, there's a long line of those guys. And oh yeah you know, their, their artwork is very specific to specific mm -hmm. genres and, you know, maybe a hundred year tradition and maybe mm -hmm. things like my imagination runs wild. When I think about like the Yakuza and who they get their tattoos from and how they uh, go down that route. Right. It's like a rabbit hole of tradition and decades and decades of, of, of journeymen in the tattooing world in Japan. Yeah. I, I feel like they've, they don't produce a lot of bad artists in Japan because they have a history of that trial and error already. That's so, you know, so long ago, a thousand years. Whereas the Vietnamese, you know, tattooing community, we only started maybe what the seventies in prison in America. 20 so, years ago, if you really think about it on a commercial level, like the way you and, and Andy uh, have, have gone about it or Bob uh, out of OC tattoos and yeah. 20 years tops, you know, of, of really yeah. kind of like, okay, now we got some sort of rhythm here. But I think for, you know, going back to the Japanese guys, the, the hundreds of years potentially, and even in the Philippines, mm -hmm. there's uh, traditions or the Maori, uh, you know, out of these islands. All the Polynesians, yeah. yeah. Polynesians, they have their long traditions of 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 uh, tattoo artists. And and I'm, I'm, again, I keep saying this, I'm very interested in this art form because of you know my brother uh has this line of like uh comics that he developed uh in vietnam with his animator animating teams and he has a toy company and many of the images we don't have we we yes. i mean we have it but it's not like you don't feel like it's vietnamese and mm -hmm. if we don't mm -hmm. have these visual representations whether it's in ink on bodies or mm -hmm. on on canvas then we don't have this sort of like flavor yet. And I think yeah. watching tattoo artists in the Vietnamese community, um, hopefully in Vietnam and the United States and the diaspora opens up this sort of like this visual sense of maybe an identity that I'm looking for, you know, uh, I'm, I'm looking for it. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. trying to explore this visual side uh, within the tattoo space. Yeah. I think Vietnamese people are just, you know, have a long history of everything. Yeah, you know what I mean, exactly. So we're just so used to just picking up where but somebody you? else left yeah. off. And yeah, so I don't know. It's hard. It's going to be a while till we have our own flavor, pretty much. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're honest about that, you know, yeah. because you've been around for two decades and it's important that we acknowledge that and we don't buck you. We don't copy. We don't. Um, well, I mean, we have to copy. We have to identify that, you know, copying yeah. and 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 eventually evolving into our own sort of way of looking at uh, the world through our lens is so important. And that's the next final question. Uh, what does it mean to be Vietnamese to these days? What does it mean to be Vietnamese? I think it's the, when it comes down to it, it's the responsibility as a Vietnamese American to make your, your parents' sacrifices worth it. You know, coming over here to a distant land where they don't know anything, where they don't know anyone to 
kind of rise above all that, help them through it and, you know, pull your whole family through in order to make your mark here. And then from there, you help the next generation and it just goes on from there, you know? Um, my family came here with nothing. So it's really, it's really weird for me to be at this stage in my life. And, um, you know, it took me a while for my parents to be proud of me for what I do. Um, they didn't take it seriously until maybe I opened my third shop or something. But um, we're at a point now where they, they know that I've done everything that I could with the tools that I had and um, just trying to make them proud. You know? Dennis, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, I appreciate the work that you do. And I look forward to, you know, more years of seeing the work and your foundation and all the work you do uh, in the social uh, world of, of uh, in San Diego, in, in the cultural sense too, not just in the tattoo and art world, but, you know, seeing what uh, you're doing for society. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Dennis. Thank you for listening to the Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. Special thanks to Brittany Tran, to Jane Wynn, Catherine Wynn, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast.